Chapter twenty seven of the Apostle of Alaska The Story of William Duncan of Metlakatla by John W. Arctander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Phil Schempf. Back in Old England. The following incident will show the wonderful influence Mr. Duncan's personality exerted, even over neighboring Indians not belonging to his colony. Two white miners had been murdered by a party of Indians. A warship was dispatched to the village to compel the surrender of the murderers. After a parley, the Indians gave up two of the three men implicated. According to their notion of law and justice, they had done all that could be required of them. Two lives had been lost, and two were given up to satisfy the demands of the whites. So even had their village been bombarded, which the captain threatened to do, it is questionable whether they would have gone any farther. At least the ship left with only this partial result accomplished. Six months later, the same warship came to Metlakatla. This time, not on an errand of war, but for the purpose of bringing the Bishop of Columbia to the village. When it had signaled its arrival by firing a gun, Mr. Duncan came out in a canoe, manned by ten Indians. By his side sat an Indian who was not handling a paddle. It was the murderer whom the heathen village had refused to surrender to the warship. He was now Mr. Duncan's prisoner. Some time after the warship had left, having accidentally come under the spell of his preaching, he went to Mr. Duncan and said, Whatever you tell me to do, I will do. If you say I am to go on board the warship when it comes here again, I will go. Mr. Duncan told him that was the only thing for him to do. He allowed him to stay in the village on condition that he would give himself up when the next warship came up the coast. When the gun sounded, he could easily have escaped. But true to his word, he came to Mr. Duncan and said, The warship is here. What must I do? You must come with me as a prisoner. So he did, and was delivered to the captain to be taken south to be tried for his life. What a ship of war with its belching cannon could not do, the influence and power of the lowly missionary had accomplished. At his trial, it appeared that he had been compelled to take part in the murder through fear. That he had, from the first, protested against the killing, but as one of the others had killed the first man, he, driven by fear that his companions would turn on him, had reluctantly joined in the killing of the second, but had succeeded in saving the life of the third man. Under the circumstances, he was pardoned. Afterwards, he came to live at Metlakatla with his family and became a sincere and earnest Christian. In 1864, the Rev. R. A. Doolan was sent out to Mr. Duncan, who advised him to start a mission among the Nass River Indians who at an earlier day had so thoroughly succeeded in arousing his interest in them. After a short sojourn at Matlakatla, he followed this advice and started a mission nation at Kuanwak on the Nass River. He only remained three years, during which time he went through many trying experiences and had many narrow escapes. But in spite of the many difficulties which he had to overcome, he laid the foundation for a great work, which should bloom grandly after he left the field. Before being compelled to leave for England by reason of a death in his family, he removed the mission station to Kincolith, heretofore mentioned in these pages. This was done by him in conjunction with the Reverend R. Tomlinson, a graduate of Dublin University, both an earnest and talented evangelical preacher and a practicing physician as well, who arrived in Metlakatla from England in the year 1867. Given his choice as to whether he would remain at Metlakatla or take over the mission on the Nass River, he promptly chose the latter. 
the fact was that his mind had while in victoria been thoroughly poisoned against mr duncan by the rev f gribble who with his wife and child had also come out to help mr duncan but who found that they could not stand it more than seven weeks i believe mrs gribble was the lady who when she was presented with a goose had to send for one of the indian women and have her teach her how to cook it of course that did not strengthen the confidence of the native women in her ability to take care of the training school where their daughters were by her to be initiated into the mysteries of housekeeping as practised by the whites mr tomlinson however after a few months found the stories which mr gribble had told him to be absolutely false and after overcoming his first prejudice became mr duncan's truest and best friend and the strongest and trustiest colleague he at any time has found in his labours he made a great success of the kincolith mission where he remained a faithful servant in the master's vineyard until eighteen seventy eight when he thought he saw a more fruitful field among some of the tribes living on the headwaters of the skeena river whose language he had mastered in eighteen sixty five mr duncan tore down his own old log house and erected on the point where it had stood and from where he had a full and unobstructed view of the two wings of the village which at this point came together as at the apex of a triangle the mission house so called a truly palatial building compared with what he had occupied up to that time it was a two-story structure sixty-four by thirty-two containing on the first floor seven large and airy rooms on the second floor was besides numerous other apartments the dormitory for the girls attending the training school which in spite of many vicissitudes caused by the poor female help continually sent him by the society had most of the time been carried on and with many evidences of god's especial blessing mr duncan at an early day advised his men who were inclined to turn christians not to marry any of the young women in the camp at fort simpson who had been taken to victoria and there exposed to the most degrading vices but to defer taking unto themselves wives until the girls in his mission training school were through with their education most of his young men followed this advice and to this day thank him for it for by doing so they secured bright well-educated christian wives who knew how to make the home pleasant and homelike and these very girls are to-day the prominent mothers and grandmothers of the best homes in the new village and an ornament to its society as well as to its church about this time the fire brigade of the village was organized consisting of six companies of ten members each there was now for years a slow but steady progress of the village in every particular of course there were drawbacks and difficulties even troubles sometimes there always are but mr duncan's words show how well he and his people knew how to meet them he writes in eighteen sixty eight the enemy is only permitted to annoy but not to destroy us only to make us stand more to our arms and to look more imploringly and continually to heaven nor is he permitted to triumph over us one joyful sign of spiritual progress was the formation of the young men to the number of one hundred or more into bible classes for the study of the word the young women of the training school at about the same time took charge of similar classes among the women young and old and often did the elders of the church and other earnest christian men go to fort simpson and to other neighboring tribes to bring to their heathen brethren the glad gospel message which had fired their own hearts a missionary spirit was over the people which testified greatly to their own christian sincerity and uprightness 
metlakahtla was becoming what had always been mr duncan's wish a brilliant beacon light on the desolate northwest coast sending its splendid rays in all directions the guiding star of the heathen tribes towards the only port of safety and happiness on a rocky and dangerous coast but at this time mr duncan had further ambitions for the young settlement he writes the spirit of improvement which christianity has engendered among these people needs fresh material and knowledge in order to develop itself the sources of industry at present in the hands of the indians are too limited and inadequate to enable them to meet their increased expenditures as a christian and civilized community which is no longer able to endure the rude huts and half-nakedness of the savage again numbers of young men are growing up in the mission who want to work and work must be found for them or mischief will follow they will be drawn to the settlements of the whites where numbers of them will be sure to become the victims of the white man's vices and diseases he had now at the beginning of the year eighteen seventy been in the wilderness and among the savages over thirteen years the call of the homeland came upon him there he felt he could go and find out about and learn trades which again he could introduce to and teach the indians never had the time been so propitious for an absence necessarily much longer than a few hurried trips to victoria all the outings he so far had consumed the elders were well schooled and able to divide among them the people for smaller meetings in the houses every sunday the constables had had experience sufficient to teach them what was necessary and proper to do to maintain order the village council knew now what was expected of it there was a competent storekeeper in charge of the store and a good man running the sawmill he felt they had got so far now that with proper instructions they would be able to carry on the moral and temporal government of the village for a year he knew he could trust them and that they would feel proud and anxious to show themselves worthy of the confidence he was about to repose in them so on the twenty-eighth day of january eighteen seventy he left his beloved metlakahtla for a visit to old england what the departure of their beloved teacher meant to the natives and how attached they were to him were made fully apparent when he left though he had been to every house and bade them all an individual farewell when the time for his leaving came they gathered in knots on the beach for still another handshake and even after the last farewell and the last solemn prayer when they all knelt together on the sandy beach around him who had led them out into the light they could not allow him to board the ship alone but followed him in their canoes until the smoke from the steamer disappeared in the dim distance i have had access to the entry he made in his memorandum book before he left as to the different trades and occupations he intended to investigate and study and try to take back with him the requisite knowledge of from old england it reads as follows teasing carding spinning weaving cleaning dyeing drying wool making soap making brushes making baskets making rope making clogs making staves dressing deer skins making bricks making tiles gardening photography quite an ambitious undertaking it must be admitted for one man with about six months time to learn it all in mr duncan is a peculiar man and he acted peculiarly he came to beverly on a friday night one would think after nearly fourteen years absence he would rush to meet mother and relatives and friends and childhood acquaintances not so he he put up at an inn on the outskirts of the town saturday he spent wandering about a great deal of the time in the cemetery 
he wanted to observe the changes wrought and find out who the silent immigrants to the resting place for the dead were alone undisturbed by friendly greetings and joyous chatter the return to him was a solemn end to a solemn absence sunday he went towards the old chapel of ease st john's church where he had spent so many hours of devotion but as he neared it he saw a man he knew and though the beardless youth had returned a man with heavy full sandy whiskers he was afraid of a recognition which he did not desire yet and pretended to be busy wiping his face with his handkerchief as he passed by on the other side of the street the methodist church he thought was the only safe place for him to worship in that day towards evening he sought the residence of his former employer mr cousins who recognized him at once he kindly consented to go the next morning to prepare mr duncan's mother for his return the old lady would not believe it when he first suggested that her son was likely to return home very soon and mr cousins had to go a second time to assure her that she would see him that day before she could make up her mind that it was so while he needed rest very much after his assiduous labors he soon started on his round of learning the various trades he went to an old irish woman who for one shilling taught him the mysteries of the spinning wheel and then thought that a fortune had fallen to her to manchester for weaving carding etc of wool to yarmouth to learn rope making and how to construct rope walks and to other places to learn to make clogs or wooden soled shoes and cooperage and he learned all that he was to learn and learned it quickly he had extensive notes of every trade and each and every particular connected with it in his memorandum book nor did he forget photography he brought back with him a photographic apparatus plates and chemicals he was the first photographer on the northwest coast and many of the illustrations given in these pages from old metlakahtla are from the photographic plates taken by mr duncan himself and these photographs used by the engraver for illustrating this book are now in many cases the only copies extant of his first efforts in an art in which nowadays almost every traveller considers himself an expert i must tell how he managed to get instruments for a brass band he had noticed that the natives though having no instruments except a primitive drum and the rattle were great singers had fine voices and a good ear for time and music he therefore made up his mind to get instruments for a brass band for them he inquired but found the price about five hundred dollars too high for him the music dealer who had become interested when he heard he wanted them for an indian mission band told him of a rich silk manufacturer who some time ago had purchased thirty instruments for a brass band for his workmen to play on but had got into some difficulty with them on account of an unwarranted strike and now kept the instruments locked up and perhaps would sell them at quite a discount mr duncan called on the manufacturer pardon me sir but i heard you had a set of brass band instruments i have what about it i was told you might sell them at a reasonable figure and as i wanted to buy a set what do you want them for mr duncan told him about his work and his indians the capitalist seemed to grow interested as he proceeded but when mr duncan had finished he said gruffly my instruments are not for sale sir all right said mr duncan i beg your pardon for intruding and taking up your time i said they were not for sale but that does not prevent my making you a present of them does it you may take them i hope you will have more joy from them than i have had from the ungrateful men i bought them for 
he now had the instruments but the next thing was how to teach the indians to play them after a short sojourn in san francisco where he was fortunate enough to secure at a cheap rate a set of looms and other machinery for a weaving plant from a manufacturer who intended to put improved machinery into his own factory he landed in victoria on his way home he there heard of a very fine music teacher he called on him and told him he wanted to learn the gamut of all the thirty pieces he had obtained for his band the teacher opened his eyes one man thirty pieces but i only have a very limited time how much time have you i leave here in eight days for the north the music teacher almost fainted away but he did not know his pupil mr duncan took eleven lessons paid him eleven dollars and when he was through he had learned the gamut of them all after he came home he called some of the young men together gave them the instruments showed them how to use them and told them to go out in the forest to practice them this they did and what a noise they made they came back after a couple of hours and told him that they knew how now he was not so sure he was not going to let them get away with the instruments anyhow so he made them hang them up on the wall in his office and come back another day and practice some more after a while he had succeeded in teaching them to play in a manner god save the queen later on he had a german machinist from victoria who was quite a musician come up to metlakatla he instructed the natives for three months that is all the instruction they have had from any white people the rest they have taught themselves and with what wonderful results will be shown later on he also at this time brought with him from victoria an organ which was placed in the church thus relieving his old concertina from further service End of chapter twenty seven